right, welcome. This is the first uh, episode of the Uptime Podcast. Um, I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm here with lightning protection expert, Alan Hall. Alan, how are you? Great, Dan. How are you? Doing well. You're in self-isolation in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, you're out in uh, Massachusetts, right? Out in western Massachusetts. It's a snowstorm right now. We're supposed to get six to eight inches of snow today, so self-quarantining or self-isolation is going to happen no matter what. Uh, all this still still in the, in the midst of, of winter over here, so, uh, you know, you may guys have sunny, at least sunny weather south of us, but uh, up here we're all burrowed in our holes. Yeah, survive the winter. Yeah, DC is not too bad. It's uh, and that's what's been kind of eerie about the whole coronavirus thing is that there's been some really nice days recently, and it's 65 and sunny, <laughs> and there's not a human to be seen, which yeah. is so weird, especially for this time of year where everyone's excited for spring and you just want to be outside on those days, but it's just a, go- a ghost town. Yeah, we see a lot of people running up and down the street uh, jogging when the sun does come out. Even when it's, 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 it's moderately warm, they'll be up and running down the street. But they're self-isolating when they're running even. So instead of seeing the normal packs of uh, college kids zig, running down the street. Zag. Yeah. Right, you got you to gotta spread out. So you got to be careful when you're driving down the roads because they're, they're, they're self-isolating when they're running too. So Yeah. So here on the Uptime Podcast, um, our goal is just to talk about the wind turbine industry and, and how we can keep these – um, these crazy big machines, obviously they keep getting bigger every, every year. Um, with some of the challenges that, you know, these are facing being in some of the harshest conditions, you know, in the middle of the ocean, um, up on mountain ranges, in the snow, in the rain, in the sleet, um, you know, this whole theme of uptime, if you're a wind farm operator, if you're working in the renewable energy sector, you know, keeping these machines running is a huge challenge. Obviously we have the technology to produce tons and tons of of, of, of electricity, but can we actually keep them running 24 seven or as close to it as, as possible? Um, so Alan, my first question for you today, cause you know, you've been in the lightning protection industry for, you know, two plus decades. Um, you know, what is, what does the common person not know about wind turbines? And as they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, now they're soaring. I know GE's new turbine is now over 800 feet yeah, in big. total, which is big. crazy. Um, yeah. How do we keep these things protected from lightning specifically? Well, as they get taller, they become more and more of a lightning rod. I think the if you just think even the layman can kind of see that if if you have any wind turbines that are around your home or business, you watch them get taller and bigger and, and produce more energy. Each one's producing more and more energy as we go along. And, that, and that's a, a economy is a scale sort of thing, right? You want to produce the maximum amount of energy in the smallest amount of footprint. So what's happening now is as, as we're getting uh, taller and taller uh, blades and turbines is that they're becoming sort of lightning attractors in a sense. Um, they're actually triggering a lot of lightning events. And the, the issue with that really is if we're starting to trigger lightning events, they're not, they're not becoming, uh, they're becoming less random. Uh, so if a thunderstorm's coming through, there's pretty much, you know, you're starting to approach more than 50% probability some of those turbines are going to be struck just based on their size because they're so high. And and we're also putting them in places where they stand out more. Obviously, uh, around us, we're, we're placing them on mountaintops, which makes a lot of sense because that's where the wind is. But in uh, off the coast of Massachusetts and all around the world, uh, we're putting them in the ocean. So they're definitely the tallest thing around and it's just causing more and more lightning strikes. And as we're hearing, uh, we're, we're hearing about a lot of downtime uh, just because lightning is damaging the blades. 
So talk a little more on this concept, because I think, and this was a misconception for me, just sort of as a, a person new to the industry, um, you're saying that these are causing lightning strikes rather than just sort of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yeah, you know, that was the common philosophy forever was if lightning struck your house, your car, your airplane, you're in anything, it was a, sort of a qualified as an act of God. That's, you know, that was pretty much the case. If you have me playing golf and out of the middle of nowhere and lightning hits you, it's kind of an act of God. But what's happening now is uh, we're getting so tall as those, as those storm clouds come over, they're full of charge. And uh, even if lightning would not normally happen, uh, just because the proximity of, of a grounded, gigantic object uh, uh, starts to trigger that process. So even though, though there may not have been a lightning strike uh, before the storm got near the wind turbine field, uh, the wind turbine field tends to cause it to start. And so what we're seeing is there's been a lot of good uh, uh, videos and things taken in the last 10 years, a lot of it over in Spain. But uh, triggering of lightning events coming from the wind turbines reaching out into those, into those clouds, physically putting electrical energy in, into, into the air and traveling up to the cloud and discharging the cloud. So it'd be kind of like um, rubbing your those feet are, on the carpet and touching a doorknob. It's a similar sort of thing. Like you, yeah. you help start that process. And those are streamers, right? So streamers come from, they originate from ground objects and they sort of reach out to step leaders. Is that right? Yeah, so it goes from streamers. So the what happens is you have a lot of electrical electrical charge at the tips of the blades. Uh, as the energy gets or the electric field gets stronger and stronger, you, you start to ionize the air, getting things little little things called streamers, which are just electrical discharges, and then they start to form into bigger things. And bigger things become things like step leaders, which are ionized channels that start to reach out in the air. So when you see a lightning strike out in the real world, uh, not on uh, in movies, but in the real world, what you'll see is uh, these charge channels that send a flash. All those is just charge stored up in the atmosphere as the electrical charge is trying to get from point A to point B. And that's what we're seeing a lot of on wind turbine blazes is that the, the blade is, a, is starting that charge and reaching out to those clouds to, to discharge that cloud. So it's a really unique phenomenon. We, we, we spent a lot of time back in the 1920s and 30s when we started building big steel buildings, <laughs> much higher than we had in the past. And those things were getting struck and we didn't, we just didn't know a lot about it. And like, if you look back in old papers and things, you'll see things like the Empire State Building or General Electric Instrument of the Empire State Building. And then we kind of forgot about all that. And then we started making wind turbines. And so we're sort of reliving the Empire State uh, Building testing and phenomena um, it's just the, the problem with wind turbines you know if you're in the empire state building you're in the middle of new york city and if something were to happen to it you could probably get to it pretty quickly and repair it if yeah. you're out in the middle of nowhere in the ocean or you're on top of a mountaintop with a wind turbine it's going to take a little while to get that thing repaired yeah to say the least it seems nightmarish to have to go repair some of these turbines i mean yeah. in like gale force winds in the middle of the ocean with just i mean it seems like a terrible ordeal. Yeah, it takes a lot of a lot of training, a lot of safety training because you can th think about the risks involved of yeah. uh, climbing out onto these things, and uh, you know, 
there's a lot of things that can go wrong. I'm, I'm always shocked at the, how, how good this, the industry is on the safety record for the, for people working on the wind turbines. They do a really good job of doing it. It's just a really difficult job. So you, you know, in our, in our company, we're trying to help minimize the times you got to go out there for to fix some lightning damage. That's what we're focused on because it's just, it is just dangerous. No matter how you look at it, if you're hanging from a rope several hundred feet in the air, and you're trying to fix this this blade, it's it's not an easy job to do. Yeah, especially considering that these turbines are placed in environments, especially in the ocean, where there's just yeah. a constant flow of wind. I mean, yeah. being up on a rope, uh, <laughs> while it's, you know, 35 mile per hour winds, that seems like the time when you don't ever want to be up on a rope. But right. and, that's and just it, the reality a lot of times. Yeah, well they, they, well, they try to limit the times. They're not going to try to be out there when it's really windy. So they're going to be selected times they can get out and go do those things. I think the, 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 the kicker is if you've ever tried to work on a car or hanging from a rope, it's like that. <laughs> Right, you, you know, you just can't walk over to the toolbox and get a tool. It's got to be on you, and and you don't really have any leverage yeah. either because you're not really kind of attached to the thing. So it, it's like levitating, trying to trying to fix Wait, do, fix your do car. Do people do that? Do people fix cars via ropes? Well, you know, it, it'd be it, if 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 there was somebody in the world that could do it, it'd be a wind turbine blade repair person. That's yeah. who it would be. It because yeah, it's sure. this. If you ever watch them work. It's a, it is really amazing. Just the coordination and the attention to detail and the thought process that goes into it before they even get onto the blade. Oh yeah. I mean, just like, I mean, you talk about just like a common job about, you know, it's like painting your house. They talk about, you know, the, the biggest thing is prep. Like if you do your prep, yeah. right. Yeah. Everything else goes very smoothly, but I mean, yeah. they're going to be up there for a couple hours, at least I would assume for some of these more complex repairs. And yeah. they're going to have oh, to have yeah. multiple batteries for their, you know, for their drill and their sander and their, you know, all those cordless tools. Like, yeah, meters. they're going to have to have a lot yeah. of stuff. I mean, there's a lot gotta, of stuff. Yeah. So you have, a, you have a lot of equipment hanging off you also, right? So you're the one bringing the equipment in, you're the one taking the equipment out. It's uh, it's a complicated thing, no doubt. Yeah. So when these turbines get struck, obviously, you know, the, the blades are the closest thing to the heavens. So they're going to take more often than not the, you know, the lightning strikes, but yeah. the yep. nacelle gets struck. Yeah. Um, where else, how would you break down the percentage of, of strikes on, on these turbines? I think the data, and I, I, was, I had been looking at data over the last couple of weeks, so, but it does tend to vary because you're not getting uh, full industry data. And it's also going to depend on where you are located in the world. But it's roughly, from what I can see, it's 80, 90% blades, 10, 20% nacelles. So if you think about the back of the nacelle, you, gotta, you have instrumentation, kind of pointy objects hanging off the back of the nacelle. And then once in a while, those things will get struck and miss the blade. But for the most part, um, as these blades get bigger and taller, then the cell strikes are going to go down and the, and the blade strikes are just going to go up accordingly because the, the blades are so much higher, so yeah. much higher than the cells. Yeah. So, but I think what's really interesting is, and this is something I didn't know until just recently is that, you know, the wind, the, or the lightning's not going to attach to just the exact point when it hits, you know, we think of lightning as being, you know, it hits a tree and it splits a tree right. or it hits a lightning yeah. rod and that's where it goes in. But right. Yeah. The turbine blades are moving a hundred plus miles per hour. So yeah. it'll hit and it'll initially attach on the tip, but then that blade is still moving. Yeah. And so then it'll attach to a second point and maybe even a third. Yeah. Um, speak a little bit on, on how these actually attach to these moving blades. 
Well, I, I, the thing to think about is typically during a thunderstorm, there are winds. And so the, the, the wind turbine is actually generating power in most cases, um, unless the winds get too high, then they automatically shut down. But those blades are turning. And when they're turning, uh, they're turning at a speed that uh, is longer than the, the sort of the lightning event. So what will happen a lot of times, it'll strike one blade. And then as a the blade sort of rotates around down to the bottom, it'll jump to the next blade that's popping up in the air. That, that is pretty typical. Uh, of the of the bigger lightning strikes. And so you'll actually see damage on two blades instead of just one. And obviously short lightning strikes, little 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 strikes will take mostly on one blade. But I've seen images and videos of them jumping over to second blades. And it's it's pretty common looking at the data. Obviously we don't sit around, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year watching watching turbines. But uh, the, the data is coming back indicates that the blades are moving fast enough that you're going to hop from one blade to another. So yeah. a lot of a lot of the blades, if you look at them, have similar damage to them. It's, it isn't like one blade's taking a big strike and the other two haven't. It, it's you know, all three have some level of damage to them. And that's I think where a lot of problems occur because you know the the lightning receptor, yeah. like every blade rolls off the factory. The lightning receptor yeah. pretty close to the edge of the blade, but not all the way to the edge yeah. or the tip, and then. Yeah. Um, so if the initial strike is out there at the tip, which makes sense, it's going to be the farthest point, you know, up towards the sky. Yeah. Great. It might hit the receptor, flow through the down conductor, then to the, you know, into the ground through the rest right. of the, of the metal body. But yep. if it's got that second attachment point, then, then what happens? Well, if it jumps over to, if it's jumping over to another blade, if that's what you're asking, if it jumps to another blade, it kind of starts the process all over again. We see this in airplanes, uh, quite often as, because the airplanes are moving at such a high speed. What it'll attach to the, like the nose of the airplane as the airplane starts flying forward, the lightning channel is fixed in space. So it, it, the lightning channel tries to find the next spot to attach to and then the next spot to attach to and the next spot to attach to. So every attachment has its own sort of physics, local physics to it about where it's going to attach to. So it may have hit the receptor on blade one. But when it starts looking for blade two, it's going to go anywhere it possibly can find. And it may not find the receptor on blade two before it finds like the down conductor or, or, or find some sort of structural weakness in the blade and decides to go through it. So it's like rolling the dice all over again, right? So you want to increase your likelihood that it doesn't go anywhere but the receptor, no matter where, which direction yeah. it's coming from, whether it's starting there or, or it's being swept into it, you want to get it to those receptors and we see that when, in a lot of cases, um, especially on sort of the restrike situation where it doesn't necessarily go to the receptor on that, on that event, it's the, the physics are a little bit different. And I think that's what's driving it is the physics get a little bit different. And once you have an established lightning channel and lightning energy running in down into a blade, when it jumps to the next blade, it's more of a localized effect instead of a sort of a universal effect. So you get different different kinds of um, lightning lightning environment and lightning requirements. And we on, on the aircraft side, I know I'm going to bring up aircraft as an example. On the aircraft side, they actually have two separate lightning tests that run, sort of the initial lightning attachment to the airplane and then the subsequent attachments to the airplane because the physics are different. We don't really do that on wind turbine blades. We, we look at the initial attachment and hope for the best. And I think the aircraft industry's learned from that over time, and the wind industry is starting to pick up a lot of those things as they figure out what's happening in the field. Yeah. So as the blade moves, 
you know, it gets initially struck, you know, on the receptor on the tip, and then it moves yep. a little bit and it takes a second strike, say it's further down the same blade. So that's where a lot of the damage is going to occur. Am I right? Because yeah, it's going to puncture and go it, through to the down conductor that's hidden beneath inside right. the blade. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's two places where blades are really susceptible. Uh, anywhere there's a, the big copper uh, down conductor running inside the blade. And then a lot of times they have something we, we call a receptor block. So the actual receptor uh, screws into a, a big aluminum or steel block that's mounted inside the, inside the blade. So the receptor block is physically much bigger than the actual receptor yeah. on the outside. So you see this kind of coin-sized receptor on the outside. Then you see this... Uh, um, uh, you know, it's probably talking in inches, probably 12 by 12 or six by six block of metal. It's sitting on the inside. So that receptor block's just as, just as attractive as the receptor itself in some cases. Um, so lightning tends to get to those receptor blocks and tends to get to that down conductor cable, which in order to do that, it's going to blow through the structure of the blade, which causes all kinds of damage. Yeah. But initially off the factory floor, the blade dielectric is enough to kind of keep that insulated. Is that yep. right? Yeah, I mean, if you go test a new blade, and which is what we tend to do, is we tend to take a new blade off the floor and then go off and, and run a lightning test on it. You, it's the same, we do the same thing for aircraft, by the way. Um, and aircraft, we'll make a, a, a plastic part, and it's just rolled off the factory line. We'll take it out for lightning testing. It's perfectly new. It's pristine, and we go test it. And it looks great because the dielectric, the actual physical nature of the plastic material is still pristine. It hasn't been stressed electrically over time. And so a lot of times you get a great test result. And then as you put that product into service, it seems to degrade over time. And what we're seeing is that um, just being exposed to multiple lightning events or electric events, electric charge events or electric field events will degrade the plastic materials. And so they're not as strong as they once were. So that lightning test you ran, that you qualified your blade, or and so you run off and you, and you qualified your blade to meet the IEC specs, uh, you're not going to get that same sort of performance out in the field. And, and that degradation of the dielectric and, and weathering is going to do that to you. So it, it in a lot of cases, you'll see a lot of great uh, advertising come out that says, oh, we've, we've done the lightning test, we've done the IEC testing, everything was great. And then a year later, you hear about the lightning strike that blew a hole in the blade. Well, that's why. That's why. Yeah. And then does, you know, things like rain erosion, just the, I mean, the temperature fluctuations, do those have a, do those sort of hasten the process of the blade dielectric sort of eroding? Yeah. So anything that, that eats into the blade degrades the blade. And it be it uh, hot, cold uh, stresses, mechanical stresses, forces, uh, rain erosion. Uh, is a big one, obviously, is it actually physically eats away at the outside structure of the blade. That, di that removes some dielectric material and just makes the blade electrically weaker. Uh, obviously, there's a big push right now to, to make the blades more durable for rain erosion and, and sort of being out in that, um, and particularly in the ocean, where it just, the blades are getting beaten up. Uh, that degrades the lightning protection also. So again, you know, we're seeing differences in what we test in the lab to what's actually happening in the field just because of that. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, it's hard to think of, you know, for me as a, as a layman to the, you know, electricity world, it's hard to think of something being electrically porous, but for me, I'm just sort of visualizing it as like actually having holes <laughs> where the electricity yeah. can actually go through, but yeah. it isn't really like that, but in a, in a sense it is right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and a lot of times, uh, so in the power industry, they learned a long time ago to not make things out of plastic uh, because they change their nature over time. If you look at, like, if you go out on the street and look at the light pole or the, or the pole that's powering your home or apartment complex, whatever you're living in, you'll see that a lot of the components are made out of ceramic. They're actually out of a hmm. glass ceramic material. That's why, is that those materials don't really change structure over time. And they can handle the weathering, um, but they're also particularly brittle, right? So you you can't yeah. use them to make wind, and they're heavy too. So you can't make wind turbine blades out of those yeah, things. You, you get can a, make get it a bird and just shatters or something. Yeah, yeah right. It's, 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 the wrong, it's the wrong material, but it just tells you that um, you don't see a lot of plastics being used in sort of the power industry, and and that's why, right? So because those those things tend to degrade uh, with heat and temperature, UV. Uh, you pick it. Uh, plastics do change substantially over time, and 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 you know, let's just this is a division of labor typically that happens in any sort of uh, on the engineering side. Right, so we all go to school. We we crank we crank out electrical engineers, and we all understand electricity and all that cool stuff. And then we create mechanical engineers, and they all understand the the stresses and the loads and the materials and all that kind of great stuff. And never the two shall meet. Right. In the lightning world, you better be good at both of those or better have an understanding of both those because you're dealing with materials and you're dealing with electricity. And that's where sort of the handoff becomes a little murky is a lot of times uh, uh, the mechanical uh, engineers get involved or structural engineers get involved on the lightning side because it's so much in the structural aspects and the, and the materials aspects are so important and the sort of the electrical guy is just running a test. Um, you know, somewhere you got to meet in the middle. And I think that's part of the reason why we've had so much difficulty over time. It's just been that sort of separation of labor and the way we, we train engineers. But, you know, as time goes on, it's one thing about the human condition is you'll, you learn from your mistakes, right? And so we're adapting like everything. And uh, we're starting to see a lot of changes happen in the wind turbine industry. Where we're starting to be a little more cross-functional, particularly in lightning. And we're starting to see more of the electrical in my opinion, the electrical people are taking on some understanding of what the materials are. And that's the, that's, that's a good approach. And I've seen a lot of mechanicals tend to be at least somewhat electrical savvy, not that they can, uh, you know, create a circuit or make a microprocessor or anything, but they understand sort of the energy effects of lightning and what it does to materials. So we're getting there. It's not a fast process, but we're getting there. Yeah. Well, and one of the things we're going to talk about in uh, in our next episode is uh, just all the new waste that's being produced. Because this is kind of crazy that, you know, we're getting to the point where a lot of these wind turbines have been around for a long time and they're starting yep. to come out of service yep. um, with some severe damage. You know, you might have to yep. take a whole blade out of service. Yeah. Um, and what are we doing with this stuff? You know, we've been facing that with cell phones and electrical waste. I mean, yes. it's funny how our yeah. species oh, yeah. is creating more more huge piles of trash, but uh, this yeah. is a growing concern for the, the wind turbine industry. And they're just now starting to figure out what they can and can't do and how they can maybe repurpose some of these. Well, yeah. Huge I, I, it's, it's similar to a lot of it at different industries, especially, uh, you know, the airlines right now are, are taking uh, big time hits and the aircraft manufacturer taking big time hits and what's going to happen and what we're going to see. And I'll give you the, the sort of equivalent between wind turbines and, and airplanes. So they're going to park airplanes and then they will take airplanes out of service because they've met their service life. Now in an airplane, a lot of that material is going to be recycled and made into something else, right? So it's mm -hmm. a lot of it's made out of 
metal or the parts or parts of the airplane can be reused and, and used as replacement parts on, on other airplanes. So those airplanes are recycled forever. And, and you know, you'll see them sitting in boneyards in the desert and recycled. A blade doesn't work like that. You know, once it's yeah. met its service life, it's really hard to extend it. And I'll give you a good example, like the B-52, which has been around since the mid-50s as a United States bomber aircraft. It's been around a long, long time. Um, they will retrofit those things to keep them flying. And the same thing is this of some commercial airlines is that a lot of airlines, airplanes have been around a long, long time because it's more efficient to try to keep that thing in service than to throw it away. On the wind turbine side, we haven't really gotten there yet. Uh, yeah. When blades get structurally degraded, that's pretty much it. They're going to end up in a landfill. And that's the trouble is that they're not right now, the way we designed blades 20, 30 years ago, they're not really recyclable. So we're struggling. And so the more we can keep blades in service, the less we're going to be putting them in landfills. And I think that's a, that's a, it's a good thing to be thinking about. Yeah. Well, Alan, um, Great first episode. Yeah. Uh, next next week we're going to tackle this a uh, little more in depth. This issue of um, you know turbine blade recyclability. You know what are some potential um, you know what can we do with these massive things that are <laughs> getting bigger and bigger? You know one blade is now the size of a what twenty story building. It's getting they're crazy. getting up there. Yeah, it's, it's getting crazy. crazy. Um, but yeah, so tune in next week uh, for the Uptime Podcast again, where we talk about everything wind turbines, renewable energy and lightning strike protection. Um, Alan, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Dan. And Stay we'll warm. see you next week. I will.